Section 28 of the Morals, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Brouwer. The Morals, Volume 2 by Plutarch. Translated by several hands, corrected and revised by William W. Goodwin. A Discourse Concerning Socrates' Daemon, Part 1. I heard lately, Cathesius, a neat saying of a painter, comprised in a similitude upon those that came to view his pictures. Froyus said, the ignorant and unskillful were like those that saluted the whole company together, but the curious and knowing like those that complimented each single person. For the former take no exact, but only one general view of the performance, but those that with judgment examined part by part take notice of every stroke that is either well or ill done in the whole picture. The duller and lazy sort are abundantly satisfied with a short account and upshot of any business, but he that is of generous and noble temper, that is fitted to be a spectator of virtue, as of a curious piece of art, is more delighted with the particulars. For, upon a general view, much of fortune is discovered. But when the particulars are examined, then, appear the art in contrivance, the boldness in conquering intervening accidents, and the reason that was mixed with and tempered the heat and fury of the undertakers. Suppose us to be of this sort, and give us an account of the whole design, how from the very beginning it was carried on, what company you kept, and what particular discourse you had that day, a thing so much desired, that I protest I would willingly go to Thebes to be informed, did not the Athenians already suspect me to lean too much to the Boeotian interest? Indeed, Archidamus, your kind eagerness after this story is so obliging that, putting myself above all business, as Pindar says, I should have come on purpose to give you a relation. But since I am now come upon an embassy, and have nothing to do until I receive an answer to my memorial, to be uncivil and not to satisfy the request of an obliging friend, would revive the old reproach that have been cast upon the Boeotian for morose sullenness and hating good discourse, a reproach which began to die in the time of Socrates. But, as for the rest of the company, pray, sir, are they at leisure to hear such a story? For I must be very long, since you enjoin me to add the particular discourses that be passed between us. You do not know the men, Cephisius, though they are worthy your acquaintance, men of good families, and no enemies to you. This is Lysiphedus, Thrasybulius' nephew, this is Timotheus, the son of Conan, these Arcanius' sons, and all the rest my very good acquaintance, so that you need not doubt a favorable and obliging audience. Farewell, but where shall I begin the story? How much of these affairs are you acquainted with already? We know, Cephisius, how matters stood at Thebes before the exiles returned, how Archaeus, Leonthidus and their associates, having persuaded Phoebidius, the Spartan, in the time of peace, to surprise that castle, banished some of the citizens, all others, took the power into their own hands, and tyrannized against all equity and law. We understood Melons and Pelopidites' designs, having, as you know, entertained them, and having conversed with them ever since they were banished. We knew likewise that the Spartans find Phoebidius for taking in Cadmea, and in their expedition to Olynthius cashed him, but sent a stronger garrison under Lysonoridas and Tumor to command the castle, 
and further that ismenias presently after his trial was basely murdered for gorgidius wrote constantly to the exiles and sent them all the news so that you have nothing to do but only to inform us in the particulars of your friend's return and the seizing of the tyrants in those days archidamus all that were concerned in the design as often as our business required used to meet at simenius house who then lay lame of a blow upon his shin this we covered with a pretence of meeting for improvement and philosophical discourse and for the sake of all suspicion we many times invited archias and leothidas who were not altogether adverse to such conversation besides simeus having been a long time abroad and conversant with different nations was lately returned to thebes full of all sorts of stories and strange relations to him Archias, when free from business would resort with the youth of thebes and sit and hear with a great deal of delight being better pleased to see his mind philosophy and learning than their legal actions now the same day in which it was agreed that about night the exiles should come privately to town a messenger whom none of us but Charon knew came from them by a Phrynchius order and told us that twelve the youngest of the exiles were now hunting on the mountain of Cerethon, and designed to come at night and that he was sent to live with this and to know in whose house they should be received that as soon as they entered they might go directly thither this startling us Charon put an end to all our doubts by offering to receive them in his house with the answer the messenger returned but theocritus the soothsayer grasping me by the hand and looking on Charon that went just before us said that Charon, Cephisius, is no philosopher nor so general nor so acute a scholar as thy brother Epimenides. and yet you see that nature leading him under the direction of the law to noble actions he willingly ventures on the greatest danger for the benefit of his country but Epimenides who thinks he knows more virtue than any of the Boeotians, is dull and inactive, and though opportunity presents, though there cannot be a very occasion, and though he is fitted to embrace it, yet he refuses to join, it will not make one in this generous attempt. Courageous Theocritus, we do what upon mature deliberation we have approved, but Epimenides, being of contrary opinion, and thinking it better not to take this course, rationally complies with his judgment whilst he refuses to meddle in those matters which his reason upon our desire cannot approve and to which his nature is averse nor can i think it prudent to force a physician to use fire and a lancet that promises to cure the disease without them what said theocritus doth he not approve of our method no i replied he would have no citizens put to death without a trial at law but if you would endeavour to free our country without slaughter and bloodshed, none would more readily comply. But since we slight his reason and follow our own course, he desires to be excused, to be guiltless of the blood and slaughter of his citizens, and to permit it to watch an opportunity when he may deliver his country according to equity and right. For this action may go too far. Phronicus, it is true, and Pelopidides may assault the bad men and the oppressors of the people. But Eumolipides and Semidas, men of extraordinary heat and violence, prevailing in the night, will hardly sheathe their swords until they have filled the whole city with slaughter and cut in pieces many of the chief men. 
Anaxidorus, overhearing this discourse of mine to Theocritus, for he was just by, bade us to be cautious, for Archias, Lysanoridius, the Spartan, were coming from the castle directly towards us. Upon this advice we left off, and Archias, calling Theocritus aside, together with Lysanoridius, privately discoursed with him a long while, so that we were very much afraid lest they had come suspicion or notice of a design, and examined Theocritus about it. In the meantime, Philidius, you know him, Archidamus, who then was the secretary to Archias the general, who knew of the exile's coming, and was one of the associates, taking me by the hand, as he used to do, before the company, found fault with the late exercises and wrestling he had seen, but afterwards, leading me aside, he inquired after the exiles, and asked whether they were resolved to be punctual to the day, and upon my assuring that they were, then he replied, I very luckily provide a feast today to treat Archias, make him drunk, and then deliver him an easy prey to the invaders. Excellently contrived, Lydius, said I, and bravely endeavoured to draw all or most of our enemies together. That, said he, is very hard, nay, rather impossible, for Archias, being in hopes of the company of some noble woman there, will not yield that Leontidus should be present so that I will be necessary to divide the associates into two companies, that we may surprise both the houses. For Archias and Leonphilus being taken off, I suppose the others will presently fly, or staying make no stir. Being very well satisfied, if they can be permitted to be safe and quiet, so, said I, will we order it? But about what, I wonder, are they discoursing with Theocritus? And Philidius replied, I cannot certainly tell, but I have heard that some omens and oracles portend great disaster and calamities to Sparta, and perhaps they consult him about those matters. Theocritus had just left them, when Philodius and Halarithian meeting us said, Simeus would have you stay here a little while, for he is interceding with Leonphilus and Naphidideus, and begs that, instead of dying, According to the sentence, he may be banished. Well, said Theocritus, this happens to be very opportunely, for I had a mind to ask what was seen and what found in Archimaeus' tomb lately opened amongst you. For perhaps, sir, you were present when Agesilaus sent to fetch the relics to Sparta, and Philodorus replied, Indeed, I was not present at the opening of the grave, for I was not delegated being extremely concerned and very angry with my fellow citizens for permitting it to be done. There were found no relics of a body, but a small brazen bracelet, and two earthen pipkins full of earth, which now, by length of time, was grown very hard and petrified. Upon the monument there was a brazen plate full of strange, because very ancient, letters. For though, when the plate was washed, all the strokes went very easily perceived, yet nobody could make anything of them, for they were a particular barbarous and very like the Egyptian character, and therefore Agesilaus, as the story goes, sent a transcript of them to the king of Egypt, desiring him to show them to the priests, and if they understood them, to send him the meaning and interpretation, but perhaps in this matter Simeus can inform us, for at that time he studied their philosophy, and frequently conversed with the priest upon that account. The Haleriati believed the great scarcity and overflowing of the pool that followed were not effects of chance, 
but a particular judgment upon them for permitting the grave to be opened and Theocritus, after a little pause said nay there seems to be some judgment to hang over the lacedaemonians themselves as those omens about which lysonorius just now discoursed me pretend and now he is gone to hilarius to fill up the grave again and as the oracle directs to make some oblations to alcimena and aleus but who this aleus is he cannot tell and as soon as he returns he must endeavour to find the sepulchre of dirci which but one of the Thebians themselves, besides the captains of the horse, knows. For he that goes out of office leads his successor to the place alone, and in the dark, there they offer some sacrifices, but without fire, and leaving no mark behind them, they separate from one another, and come home again in the dark. So that I believe, Philodolaus, it will be no easy matter for him to discover it, for most of those that have been duly elected to that office are now in exile, they are all beside Gordius and Plato, and they will never ask those, for they are afraid of them. And our present officers are invested in the castle with the spear only at the seal, but know nothing of the tomb and cannot direct them. Whilst Theocritus was speaking, Leonphidus and his friends went out, and re going in saluted Simenius, sitting upon his couch, very much troubled because his petition was denied. He, looking upon us, cried out good god the savage barbarity of these men and it was not an excellent remark of fails who when his friends asked him upon his return from his long travels what strange news he brought home replied i have seen a tyrant an old man for even he hath received no particular injury yes disliking their stiff pride and haughty carriage becomes an enemy to all lawless and unaccountable powers but heaven perhaps will take these things in consideration. But Cephisius, do you know the strange that came lately hither? Who he is? And I replied, I do not know whom you mean. Why, said he, Leonphidus told me that there was a man at night seen to rise out of Lysias' tomb, with great pomp and a long train of attendants, and that he had lodged there all night upon the beds made of leaves and boughs. For the next morning, such were discovered there with some relics of burnt sacrifices and some milk oblations and that in the morning he inquired of every one he met whether he should find polymius sons at home i wonder said i who it is for by your description i guess him to be no mean man well said philodolos when he comes we will entertain him but at present simius if you know anything more of those letters about which we were talking Pray let us have it, for it is said that Egyptians priests took into consideration the writing of a certain table which Agassilaus had from us when he opened Achaemenus' tomb. As for the table, replied Simeus, I know nothing of it, but Agathoridius, the Spartan, came to Memphis with letters from Agassilaus to Cornalphis, the priest, whilst I, Plato, and Alippo, the Periphian, stood together at his house. He came by order of the king who enjoyed Conalphus, if he understood the writing, to send in the interpretation with all speed. And he, in three days' study, having collected all the different sorts of characters that could be found in the old books, wrote back to the king, and likewise told us, that the writing enjoined the Greeks to institute games in honor of the muses, that the characters were such as were used in the time of Proteus, and that Hercules, 
the son of Amithrio, then learned them, and that the gods by this admonished the Greeks to live peaceably and at quiet, to be content in philosophy to the honor of the muses, and, laying aside their arms, to determine what is right and just by reason and discourse. When he thought that Knophis spoke right, and that opinion was confirmed, when, as we were sailing from Egypt, about Carius some Delians met us, who desired Plato, being well skilled in geometry, to solve an odd oracle lately, delivered by Apollo. The oracle was this, then the Delians and all the other Greeks should enjoy some respite from the present evils, when they had doubled the altar at Delos. They, not comprehending the meaning of the words, of the many ridiculous endeavors, from each of the sides being doubled, they had to frame the body, instead of twice, eight times as big, with application to Plato to clear the difficulty. He, calling to mind what the Egyptian had told him, said that the god was merry upon the Greeks, who despised learning, that he severely reflected on their ignorance, and admonished them to apply themselves to the deepest parts of geometry, for this was not to be done by a dull, short-sighted intellect, but by exactly skilled in the nature and properties of lines. It required skill to find a true proportion by which alone a body of a cubic figure can be doubled. All his dimensions being equally increased, he said that Icodocus, the Canadian of Heligio, the Canadian might do this for them, but that was not the thing desired by the god, for by this oracle he enjoined all the Greeks to leave off war and contention, and apply themselves to study and, by learning and arts moderating their passions, to live peaceably with one another, and profit the community. While Simeus was speaking, my father, Polymus, came in, and sitting down by him said, Epaminondas desires you and the rest of the company, unless an urgent business requires your attendance, to stay for him here a little while, designing to bring you acquainted with this stranger, who is a very worthy man and the design upon which he comes is very genteel and honorable. He is a Pythagorean of the Italian sect, and comes hither to make some offerings to old Lysias at his tomb, according to diverse dreams and very notable appearances that he have seen. He have brought a good sum of money with him, and thinks himself bound to satisfy Ephemimodius for keeping Lysias in his old age, and is very eager, though we are neither willing nor desire him, to relieve his poverty. And, Simeus, glad at his news, replied, You tell me, sir, of a wonderful man, and worthy professor of philosophy, but why doth he not come directly to us? I think, said my father, he lay all night at Lysias' tomb, and, therefore, Epinodus hath now led him to the Ismenus to wash, and when that is done, they will be here, for before he came to our house, he lodged at the tomb, intending to take up the relics of the body, and transport them into Italy if some genius at night should not advise him to forbear. As soon as my father had ended this discourse, Glexidorus cried out, Good gods! How hard a matter it is to find a man pure from vanity and superstition, for some are betrayed into those fooleries by their ignorance and weakness. Others, that they may be taught extraordinary men and favorites of heaven, refer all their actions to some divine admonition, pretending dreams, visions, and the like, surprising fooleries for everything they do. This method indeed is advantageous to those that intend to settle commonwealth, or are forced to keep themselves up against a rude and ungovernable multitude, 
for by this bridle of superstition that i manage and reform the vulgar but these pretenses seem not only unbecoming philosophy but quite opposite to all those fine promises she makes for having promised to teach us by reason what is good and profitable falling back again to the gods as the principle of all our actions she seems to despise reason and disgrace that a demonstration which is her peculiar glory and she relies on dreams and visions in which the worst of men are oftentimes as happy as the best and therefore you socrates simias in my opinion followed the most philosophical and rational method of instructions choosing that plain and easy way as the most genteel and friendly unto truth and scattering to the sophisters of their age all those vain pretenses which are as it were the smoke of philosophy what Glexidorus, and have meletus persuaded you that socrates contempt all divine things for that was part of his accusation divine things by no means replied Glexidorus. but having received philosophy from pythagoras epidocles full of dreams fables superstitions and perfect raving he endeavoured to bring wisdom and things together and make truth consist with sober sense be it so rejoined theocritus but what shall we think of this daemon was it a mere juggle indeed nothing that is told of pythagoras regarding divination seems to me so great and divine for in my mind as homer makes minerva to stand by ulysses in all dangers so the daemon joined to socrates even from his cradle some vision to guide him in all the actions of his life which going before him shed a light upon hidden and obscure matters and such as could not be discovered but unassisted human understanding of such things the daemon often discoursed with him presiding over and by divine instinct directing his intentions more and greater things perhaps you may learn from simias and the other companions of socrates but once when i was present as i went to euphron the soothsayers it happened simias for you remember it that socrates walked up to symbolum in the house of anacodokides all the way asking questions and joyously perplexing euphron when standing still upon the sudden and persuading us to do the like he mused a pretty while and then turned about walked through the flunkersmaker street calling back his friends that walked before him affirming that it was his daemon's will and admonition and he turned back amongst whom i holding euthron was one but some of the youths keeping on the straight way on purpose as it were to confute socrates demon took along with them carriers the piper who came in my company to athens to see Thebes. now as they were walking through graves row near the courthouses a herd of dirty swine met them and being too many for the street and running against one another they overthrew some that could not get out of the way and dirtied others and Carilius came home with his legs and clothes very dirty so that now and then in merriment they would think on socrates demon wondering that it never forsook the man and that heaven took such particular care of him then Glexidorius, and do you think theocritus that socrates demon had some peculiar and extraordinary power and was it not that this man had by experience confirmed some part of the common necessity which made him in all obscure and evident matters add some weight to the reason that was on one side for as one grain doth not incline the balance by itself yet add to one of two weights that are of equal poise makes the whole incline to that part 
thus an omen or the like sign may of itself be too light to draw a grave and settled resolution to any action yet when two equal reasons draw on either side if that is added to one the doubt together with the equality is taken off so that the notion and inclination to that side is presently produced then my father continuing this course said you yourself Glexidorus, have heard the megarian whether from therapism say that socrates demon was nothing else but the sneezing either of himself or others for if another sneezed either before behind or on his right hand then he pursued his design and went on to action but on the left hand he desisted one sort of sneezing confirmed him whilst deliberating and not fully resolved another stopped him when already upon action but indeed it seems strange that if sneezing was his only sign he should not acquaint his familiars with it but pretend it was a daemon that encouraged or forbade him for that this should proceed from vanity or conceit is not agreeable to the felicity and simplicity of the man for in those who knew him to be truly great and far above the generality of mankind nor is it likely so grave and wise men should be disturbed at a casual sound or sneezing and upon that account leave off what he was about and give over his premeditated resolutions besides all socrates resolution seems to be altogether vigorous and steady as begun upon right principles and mature judgment thus he voluntarily lived poor all his life though he had friends that would have been very glad and very willing to relieve him he still kept close to philosophy notwithstanding all the discouragements we met with and at last when his friend endeavoured and very ingeniously contrived his escape he would not yield to their entreaties but met death with mirth and cheerfulness and appeared a man of a steady reason in the greatest extremity and sure these are not the actions of a man whose designs when once fixed could be altered by an omen or a sneeze but the one who by some more considerable guidance and impulse is directed to practice things good and excellent besides i have heard that to some of his friends he foretold the overthrow of the athenians in sicily and before that time perilampus the son of antiphon being wounded and taken prisoner by us in that pursuit at delium as soon as he heard from the ambassadors who came from athens that socrates with Acrisibides and laches fled by registe and returned safe blamed himself very much and blamed also some of his friends and captains of the companies who together with him were overtaken in their flight about parnes by our cavalry and slain there for not obeying Socrates' daemon, and retreating that way which he led, and this I believe, Simeus have heard as well as I. Yes, replied Simeus, many times, and from many persons, for upon this Socrates' daemon was very much talked of at Athens. Why then, pray, Simeus, said Philodolaus, shall we suffer Glexidorius drolling to the great so considerable a prophetic spirit into an omen or a sneeze? which the vulgar and ignorant, it is true, merrily use about small matters. But when any danger appears, then we find that of Eurypius verified. None near the edge of swords will mind such toys. To this Glexidorus rejoined, Sir, if Simeus hath heard Socrates himself speak anything about this matter, I am very ready to hear and believe it with you but yet what you and polonimus have delivered i could easily demonstrate to be weak and insignificant for as in physic 
the pulse of a whelk is itself but a small thing yet it is a sign of no small things to the physicians and as the murmuring of the waves or of a bird or the driving of a thin cloud it is a sign to the pilot of a stormy heaven and troubled sea thus to a prophetic soul a sneeze or an omen though no great matter is simply considered in itself yet may be the sign and token of considerable impending accident for every art and science takes care to collect many things from few and great from small and as if one that doth not know the power of letters when he sees a few ill-shapen strokes should not believe that a man skilled in letters could read in them the famous battles of the ancients the rise of cities the acts and calamities of kings and should assert that some divine power told him the particulars he would by a disignorance of his race a great deal of mirth and laughter in the company so let us consider whether or not we ourselves being altogether ignorant of every one's power of divination by which he guesseth at what is to come are not foolishly concerned when it is asserted that the wise man by that discovers some things obscure and inevident in themselves and moreover himself declares that it is not a sneeze or a voice but a daemon leads him on to action this polemus particularly respects you who cannot but wonder that socrates who by his meekness and humility have humanized philosophy should not call this sign a sneeze or a voice but very pretendingly a daemon when on the contrary i should have wondered if a man so critical and exacting discourse and so good at names as socrates should have said that it was a sneeze and not a daemon that gave an intimation as much as if any one should say that he is wounded by a dart and not with a dart by him that threw it or as if any one should say that a wave was weighed by the balance and not with the balance by the one who holds it for any effect is not the effect of the instrument but of him whose the instrument is and who uses it to that effect and the sign is an instrument which he that signifies anything thereby useth it to that effect but as i said before if simeas has anything about this matter that is quietly attend for no doubt he must have a more perfect knowledge of the thing end of section twenty eight